I want to introduce you to someone this morning, one of the most remarkable personages in all of Scripture, a, a man of valor, a man of courage, a man of vision, a man with values. He's the type person that you, at least I, just stand back in awe because he conquered giants, and I'll mention that to you in a moment. But he's also the type of person that you think, wherever he's at, I'd like to hang. Oh, he belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. Then I'd like to be part of that group just because he's there. Because any group that he's a member of, it would be my privilege to hang out and be a part of. The man's name is uh, Jonathan. He is the uh, prince of Israel, the oldest son of King Saul. So he is the uh, heir apparent in Israel. His name, Jonathan, is interesting. Uh, uh, Nathan, the word Nathan, means uh, give or gift. So if you put Jehovah or Yahweh on the beginning of Nathan, you get Jah, Yah, Nathan, Nathan. And so it means gift of God. Jah, Nathan, Jonathan. Or you can go another word way because another word in the Bible for God is Ael, E-A-L, uh, excuse me, E-A-L, Ael. And the plural of that is Elohim, like seraphim. You, that's Hebrew. The plural is I am. And so if you took uh, Nathan and you put Ael on the end, you get what? Nathaniel. So you could have two sons, and you could name one Yah-Nathan, Jonathan, and you could name the other one Nathanael, Nathaniel, and both their names in Hebrew would mean gift of God. So Jonathan is named gift of God the firstborn son of King Saul. I want to go with you this morning through three phases <clears throat> of the life of Jonathan. Now, it covers several chapters in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, there's 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And Samuel was a prophet, and he wrote... Uh, this uh, or put together we see he used different sources and he put them together because this story about Jonathan covers several chapters in 1st Samuel and what the narrator has done the writer has skillfully woven together the story of Saul the story of Jonathan and the story of David uh, and the history of Israel and when you're weaving uh, the life events of three different people together, as well as all the events and supporting cast, it can get complicated. And it shows the skill of the narrator, of the author in 1 Kings. But it means that what you need to do if you want to study the life of David, you've got to go through and kind of study the sections that talk about David. If you want to talk about Saul, you've got to go through and study the sections that talk about Saul. If you want to talk about Jonathan, 
you've got to go through and study the sections that talk about Jonathan. And that's what we're going to do this morning with the anticipation that this afternoon or this week you'll take 1 Samuel and you'll read it as a narrative. We're not going to read the whole thing this morning. It would be a long reading. And we're not the pilgrims uh, in uh, the 17th century who would spend all morning in church and the, the intercessory prayer, the pastoral prayer would be an hour long and the scripture reading would be an hour long and the sermon would be at least an hour. And all this was done standing because they didn't have uh, pews. So not being uh, of the fiber of the pilgrims, <clears throat> uh, I'll leave it to you this afternoon or during the week to read those chapters, and I'm going to introduce you to Jonathan, the best of friends. The story begins, and I've given you an outline there on uh, page 7 of your bulletin. It begins in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Before 1 Samuel uh, 16 and 17 chapters, where David slew the giant Goliath, before anyone even knew David existed, because he was out in the hills taking care of sheep, there was a mighty man of valor, the prince of Israel, the firstborn son of the king, Jonathan. And this is how it came about in chapter 14. Chapter 13 tells us that Israel was in bad shape. The uh, conquering powers, uh, what were they called? The Philistines, because they were in uh, Philistia. Uh, the current uh, pronunciation of Philistia is Palestine. Okay? And the current pronunciation of Philistine is Palestinian. <clears throat> so there's a connection. They were uh, a greater military power than Israel, and they were uh, dominating Israel to the point, even with the great Saul the king, to the point that they would not let any uh, Jewish village have a blacksmith because they would said, then they'll make swords and then they'll fight against us. So even to get their scythe or their axe or something sharpened, they had to go to a Philistine blacksmith and pay an exorbitant price. And as a result, there were only two swords in all of Israel. One belonged to Saul the king and one belonged to Jonathan the prince. The rest of them had wood spears and mattocks and things like that. So Saul is camped with 600 men, unarmed men, and they are surrounded by armed camps of Philistines. It's a bad situation, wouldn't you say? And so Jonathan says, Now a detachment of Philistines, 1 Samuel 14, had gone out to the pass of Michmash, and one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, his armor bearer, a young man, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side of the valley. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying on the outsets of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. He had about 600 men. Now down in verse 4, 
On each side of the path that, pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One cliff was named Bozes, and the other was Sina. So you got a valley, and there's a cliff here and a cliff here, and the Philistines on one side, and Jonathan and his armor bearer are on the other. By the way, um, the uh, name of Bozes and Sina, one means uh, uh, thorny and slippery, and one and the other one means briars and slippery. So they were full of briars and they were slippery. In other words, they were crags, hard to get across. Jonathan said to his young arbor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost on the other side of the valley of these uncircumcised fellows. And that's interesting. He didn't, it was interesting. Robert E. Lee, during the Civil War, he never called the Union Army soldiers the enemy. He said, There are a fellow countryman, he called them those people. He said to his, uh, to his generals one day, I wish those people would go back home. So Jonathan is calling them uncircumcised fellows, you see. By that he means they're not Jewish, they're not Israelites, they're not baptized, they're not part of the nation of Israel. My name is Yah-Nathan, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. I am under the covenant of God down through Abraham, and I have the sign of circumcision, the way a Christian has the sign of baptism that says, I am a member of this tribe, of this covenant family. So by calling them uncircumcised, he's calling them outside the covenant family, and they are showing themselves to be enemies of the covenant family. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And then the armor bearer, this young man, said, Do all you have in mind. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Well, come then. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to cross over toward the men. And let them see if, if they say, wait there and we'll come get you, uh, we'll wait right here. But if they say, come over the valley to us, that will be the sign that the Lord has given into our hands. And they showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Okay? And they said, the Philistine, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. The little cowards. And the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on over here. And we'll teach you a lesson. Because about 15 or 16 of them. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. After all, I got one sword, and there's only 15, 20 of them. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet because it was a crag and because it was slippery and full of briars. So he's clawing his way up. Isn't that strange? You know, uh, this happened during the Civil War, too, and during the American Revolution. You'd have to march all night and then fight the next day without any sleep and without breakfast. It's just a strange thing of life that before you have to fight a battle, you've got to get your equipment and get trained. You'd figure, look, why can't I? And Sandy and I went on a campus crusade for Christ's staff. We served at University of Georgia and at Northwestern University. I said, okay. Get me trained and let's go. Well, no, there's something you've got to do first. Well, what's that? You've got to raise your own financial support. I might say, what? 
if I'm going to go minister, at least somebody could pay me to do it. Well, they will, but you've got to go raise it. So here's Jonathan saying, I'm willing to go fight a whole squad of Philistine soldiers. Okay, you've got to climb down this crag, cross the valley, and climb back up the other side with your hands and feet. It's never easy, is it? It's just strange how God says, if you want to do something, show me if you want to do it. It's just strange how God works that way. Well, we can come back to that. Joshua climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. So Jonathan is whacking them down and the armor bearer is coming back with a spear and stabbing them. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 men in the area of about half an acre. A good sword work. Then panic struck the whole Philistine army. Those in the camp and those in the field and those in the outposts and in the raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic set by God. And the whole army melted away in all directions and they were making so much noise that the 600 guys with Saul said, what's going on? I can see their backs. They're fleeing. What do you think we should do? Well, let's chase them and stab them in the back and kill them. This is a brilliant army. Well, what are we going to use for swords? Well, they're dropping their weapons. Pick up their weapons and go after And they did. And it says at the end, so the Lord rescued Israel that day, and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. So I give you Jonathan, the man of faith, because he trusted God. Now, this is before. It's chapter 16 and 17 that David faces Goliath. So this is before any of that happened. So here is this prince climbing across this valley, clawing his way up uh, this crag, and fighting this outpost and putting 20 to death with his armor bearer. And then God gave a panic, and then they fled. And that's another strange the way God works, you see. Uh, he told the people of Israel with Jericho, march around it. What was it, seven times? And then the walls fell down. Well, why, do we, why don't you just knock them down? Why do we have to march? Because this is your part in it. And when they were crossing the Jordan, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And it says when the priest's feet got into the water, then the waters receded and they could cross, uh, uh, cross on dry land. There always seems to be something that God asks us to do. And then God honors it. You see how he did that? I could give you some more illustrations of that. This is Jonathan, the man of faith. He was the hero of Israel before David ever came along. He was the heir apparent. He was the prince. But let me show you something else that brings us together. You know who my hero is in this whole story? is the young armor bearer. And I'll tell you why that is. There aren't many kings in Israel. There aren't many princes. And there aren't many Davids. But there are a lot of soldiers. And there are even more armor bearers. I identify with the armor bearer because I like his approach. David says, 
Now, let me show you how this works. First of all, uh, Jonathan is a man of vision. He had a mental picture, and that was defeating the enemies of God. And he also had values. His values, maybe God will bless us because God can give victory whether it's a few, few, just the two of us, or a whole army. His value was that God was sovereign. God was in charge. And if God will bless us, then one can chase a thousand. He had a vision. He had values. And then he had valor. He was willing to put his vision and his values on the line. You see, a church... Most of all, has to have vision. Some people have the idea, let's build a beautiful building and they will come. Let's start a lot of ministries and we can attract people. No, you don't need a building and you don't need programs. What you need is a vision. Because vision attracts leaders. Because leaders want to invest their time, their talent, and treasure in something worthwhile. They want to know, where are we going? What are we trying to accomplish? What does it look like when we get there? What is the vision? And I know this because this brave, young armor bearer who followed Jonathan up that crag and down that crag and across the valley and up the other side, two men, one sword, and 20 soldiers of the Philistines. This is what he said. Do all that you have in mind. See, vision is a mental picture. And Jonathan has given him a vision for going over and attacking the enemy and defeating them. And he had seen Jonathan's values. God is sovereign. If he blesses us, we can be successful. And with those vision and values displayed before him, he was a man of valor who was willing to implement and put his life on the line, his time, his talent, and treasure. And that young armor bearer said, do whatever you got on your mind. I am with you heart and soul. You see, that's what I can do. If I can find a church or a leader with vision and values and valor, I'll follow him to the ends of the earth. I'll give him my heart and my mind, my heart and soul, to follow him. And if he'll knock them down, I'll spear him and kill him. You see, a church with vision and values and leaders with valor will attract leaders. And you know what leaders do? They create ministry. And you know what ministry does? It attracts people. And you know what people bring with them? Money. So then you have ministry and congregants and resources. But you have to start with a vision. This young armor bearer is not going to follow someone that doesn't have a vision and values to back it up and the valor to follow it. So my hero is this young armor bearer. That's what I want the cry of my heart to be. 
That's what I look for in a church. That's what I look for in officer candidates. That's what I look for in committee chairs. That's what I look for in committees. Can you follow a vision? Can you give your heart and your soul to it? I might have told you the story. I told it to the transition team. Sanya and I were going on Campus Crusade for Christ staff in the winter of 1974. And in the winter, the training was at Arrowhead Springs in San Bernardino, California, the headquarters of crew. And there were about 25 of us instead of 250 that would be there during the summer at Fort Collins in Colorado. And so we had personal training. We met Bill Bright. We met Vonette Bright. And Bill was sharing his vision in 1974 that America would be reached by 1976 and the world be reached by 1980. And being a young college graduate, I at least knew I knew nothing. And so I said, Dr. Bright, I'll be honest with you, I just can't see reaching America in two years and the world in four. And he said, I understand that. That's my vision. But I feel like if we have a goal, we're better off for having a goal than not having a goal because we'll get more accomplished. He said, let me ask you this, Jerry. Can you follow my vision? Why, yes, I can do that. I can do that with all my heart and soul because you're a man of vision and value and valor. Send me where you want me to go. Give me the training I need. And so they trained us and sent us to the University of Georgia, Sandy and I. And we went about fulfilling the Great Commission where we were sent. See, that's what we want to develop clearly for this church, a vision and values. And we're looking for men and women, leaders of valor, who are willing to give their heart and their soul the way this young armor bearer did. Can you do that? Jonathan was such a man, a man of faith. Well, let's move on. Jonathan also a man of friendship, and you see that over here in chapters 18 and 20. David slew Goliath. What is this uncircumcised fellow doing, challenging the people of God? And he took some small, three small stones in case he had two brothers and then he went out there and attacked him and brought him down. And Jonathan, the man of valor, the proven hero, is watching this. And David comes back and humbly says, I am the son of Jesse, your servant, O king. And this is what happened. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Unparalleled friendship. And let me draw the parallel for you. What did this mighty man of valor, Jonathan, the prince of the Israel, see in David? He saw a man of vision. 
Israel shall not be conquered by an uncircumcised soldier, even if he is a giant. And he had a value. God will give the victory because God is sovereign. And then he put his valor to it and went out there and faced him. And the way the armor bearer said to Jonathan, I'm with you heart and soul. Jonathan turned to David and said, I'm with you heart and soul. See, leaders not only lead, they know how to follow. Because you can't lead if you can't follow. And David conquered Goliath the giant. But I put it to you that Jonathan conquered a bigger giant, the giant of jealousy and covetousness. Because David had been anointed by Samuel to replace his father Saul because of Saul's disobedience, and God had rejected him. This was Jonathan's replacement. Saul knew that, and he tried to kill David. He pursued him so that David had to go hide in caves. He threw spears at him. And Jonathan, unquenchable friendship, defended David to his father and said, what has he done wrong? He has fought your battles. And David said, Jonathan, my son, you fool. You son of a perverse woman. Don't you know that if he lives, you will never be king? Don't you have any sense of pride, of jealousy? Don't you want the throne? And Jonathan said, I want what God wants. And he is sovereign. And I have seen a man of vision and values and valor that God has chosen to be king. And I'm going to follow him with unquenchable friendship, with all my heart and soul. Now, is this not one of the most remarkable people in Scripture? One of the most remarkable men that you could ever meet. And would you not like to be part of a people to which he belongs? The people of God just to be part of the people of God and say, Jonathan is part of my family, part of my tribe, part of my people. And even to get to heaven, I, I just want to meet the man, meet him. I'll just be glad to stand back and see him in a distance. I want to see Jonathan who conquered himself. Pride, jealousy, covetousness what a prince what a mighty man mm. this Jonathan the man of friendship an unquenchable fellowship and then Jonathan the man of faith how does God treat his favored people. 
How does God treat men of faith and men of valor? Chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons. He had three sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. They fell defending their father, the king. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And he said to his armor bearer, slay me or they will mutilate me. And the armor bearer said, I can't kill the king, the anointed of God. And so Saul fell on his own sword. And they overran the position. And the next day, what is that, verse 8? When the Philistine came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped him of his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land to proclaim their victory. They put his armor in the temple of the idol Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bashan. They cut off his head and they stuck his body to the sun and the crows upon the wall. And if you read further, they did the same thing with his three sons. When the Jewish people of Jabez-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night. They took down the bodies of Saul. In other words, they had to fight. And his sons from the wall, and they burned them and they buried the bones under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. This mighty man of valor, this man of unquenchable friendship, dies, is mutilated, and displayed before the pagan Philistines. But this might have been his greatest hour. He could have been with David, saying, you are the future king, let me serve with you. But that wasn't his place. His father, the anointed king, was fighting Israel's battles, while David, the uncrowned king, was hiding in caves. And so he stood where an Israelite soldier and a prince and a son should be. He stood beside his father with his two brothers and fought to the death. Robert E. Lee said the most beautiful language word in the English language is duty. Unvarnished duty. This was a man, I wrote it down this way, of unquestioned courage, unquenchable friendship, and unstained honor. He did his duty, even if it meant dying for a rejected king, because this was the anointed of Israel. And when an Amalekite ran up to David's camp and said, King Saul is dead, now you can be anointed king. 
He said, how do you know? He said, I not only saw him die, but he was wounded and he asked me to kill him and he lied and he said, I took the sword and killed him. I know he's dead because I killed him. And David said to the Amalekite, didn't it bother you to put sword to the Lord's anointed? Kill this man. And they killed him right in front of David. He said, by your own words, you were condemned. You raised a hand against God's anointed. Even rejected, he was still the anointed king of Israel by God's will. And Jonathan knew this. Untarnished honor and duty. And that's why he is one of the most remarkable people in all Scripture. And one reason we think so much of him is because he followed his God, who in his mind was sovereign and ruled over all. And he was willing to lay down his life to serve him. And we follow our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a man of remarkable vision, the son of God, the firstborn son, the only begotten son. And he had a vision of a people, a people of his very own, whose sins were paid for by his own shed blood, redeemed from Satan out of the punishment of sin by his own sacrifice. A group of people that would spend eternity with him and that would see his glory in heaven. That was his vision. A people you have reserved for me. And he was willing to lay down his life for those people. A man of high value because he knew that God was just. And if God just forgave a sinner without a sacrifice, he would cease to be just. It required a sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice. And he said, a body you have prepared for me, O God, I come to do thy will. He satisfied the justice of God so that the mercy of God to flow to his people. And then, a man of valor. It's not enough to have vision and values. You have to be willing to fight the fight to see that vision and values brought into reality. So I think the reason we honor Jonathan so much is not only because he was great, but he died. We honor him because he was following the same God we follow, the sovereign God, who had a son, a prince, who was willing to die the way Jonathan was for his people. And now he is the one that's anointed. You see, it runs through Jonathan and David and Jesus. Vision, values, and valor. They all represent unquestioned courage, unquenchable friendship, 
and unstained honor. That's the kind of people I'd like to be with. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these wonderful stories in Scripture. The great prince of Israel, the courageous Jonathan. And we thank you, Father, that Jonathan and David just point us to your son, your only begotten son, the prince of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life, fulfilled his calling, his duty, so that we might serve you in righteousness that we receive from Christ in exchange for our sin. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.